Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... It was all still a growth industry. We were still learning the business. Who was to know that, you know, Elton John, who I met in 1972, that I'd be doing his last tour of Australia in 2019-20. How does a 15-year-old boy in the early 1960s in Launceston, Tasmania, indulge his love of music and transform that love into a business he built into one of the biggest independent music tour management businesses in the land. Well, if you're young Michael Chug, who was that 15-year-old, you just get in, get on and do it. Over the next five plus decades, entrepreneurial Michael Chug has been a key figure in developing the Australian music industry and in particular concert tours. He's a founding father, if you will, and a major force in bringing to Australia and staging the big hit stadium tours of many of the biggest music stars in the world. From ABBA, David Bowie and Linda Ronstadt in the 70s, to Sinatra, Madonna, Elton John, The Police, Bob Dylan and Neil Young in the 80s, to Robbie Williams and the Dixie Chicks in the 2000s, and so many more. Michael Chug took risks and backed himself. As the founder of Chug Entertainment, and he co-founded, with the late Michael Gadinsky, Frontier Touring. Michael Chug has also always resolutely supported homegrown Aussie rock, and not just the great Billy Thorpe, Richard Clapton and Marcia Hines back in the 70s and 80s, but also recent ARIA winners, Tame Impala and Lime Cordial too. So how has Chug navigated the ever-changing music business with the COVID-19 pandemic, just the latest serious challenge that's turned the touring and concert scene on its head? Well, let's listen now to part one of Michael Chug. Michael Chug, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. It's a pleasure, Alan. It's great to be here. Oh, look, it's great to be talking to you. You are really a founding father of the Australian music industry, particularly the live music and concert touring part of it. You're the founder of Chug Entertainment and also co-founder of Frontier Touring, which many people will know and, and love the name. How do you describe yourself? Are you an impresario, a tour promoter, a manager, a talent spotter? And you're also a fierce advocate of local new talent. Yeah, I'm a bit of all that, really. You know, I mean, you know, given because of the pandemic the last 18 months, 20 months, I mean, we've uh, really been developing uh, our own management and label with a lot of great Australian talent because obviously there's very little touring going on and what is going on is fraught with postponements and cancellations and capacity changes nearly every week. We'll get to COVID a bit later in the interview because obviously it's had a massive impact on particularly music, live music, touring, that sort of thing. but. 
you have toured or promoted really the who's who of global and Australian rock and pop and folk music for the past, what, half century plus. It is hard to categorise you into one description, isn't it? You are certainly an entrepreneur. Yes, I am. Promoter, entrepreneur, risk taker. (laughs) Well, I think we're going to talk a lot about risk taking. Before we get to that, can you give us a snapshot picture of just what Chug Entertainment is right now? I mean, apart from, I guess, being stopped in your tracks due to COVID, what is the business? Well, which are um, international and Australian acts. Back in 2018, 2019, I went back into a JV situation with my late friend, Michael Gadinsky, as we felt we both needed to build a legacy for the future. And we had a lot of the same ideas about the industry and about Australian music and everything, the problems with the industry and what needed to be fixed. So we decided to get back together. Unfortunately, Michael passed away this March. So sad, and and I'm sure it was very sad for you as we obviously saw in a public sense it was very sad for the Australian music community. So what do you do? Tours have sort of stopped or been constantly cancelled. Is the development of, say, local talent still going on apace? Yeah, the development of Australian talent is still going on. Basically, you know, we've had to move a few big tours like Tame Impala and David Gray and acts like that. We've had to move back into 2022, late 22 or early 23. But we are building possible tours for basically 2023 onwards. We don't believe that international borders will open in a way that enables acts to come in. I mean, trying to get international acts to come in here in quarantine and then having, you know, at the moment, every state's its own little territory and own little kingdom. And so, you know, it's very hard to plan anything. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's even aside from safety precautions within a crowded concert or festival situation. That's right. Can we step back? Your music career actually began in Tassie, in Tasmania, in 1962. I believe you were just 15 years old. What was that first involvement, Michael? I was a cyclist in Tasmania and the local amateur cycling club were doing a charity fundraising month and I was working with a guy who was in one of Tassie's top bands at the time and I suggested we ran a dance. So we ran a dance at the Launceston Trades Hall and raised about 80 pounds for the cycling club. And that was really, I'd always had a love of music. So that was really the beginning. Yeah. You, you really got into live music in the early 1970s. How did that happen? And why live bands? Oh, that was the way it was. I mean, I started off in Tasmania after that dance, managing local bands and, uh, you know, playing shows around the state in Hobart and Burnie and Devonport and Launceston, places like that. By this time, you're only, what, in your early 20s? Oh, no, this is like 62 onwards. And then I moved to Melbourne in 69 full time. I'd been going backwards and forward to Melbourne with local acts. And I was bringing national name acts like Lynn Randell and Billy Thorpe and people like that to Tasmania. Yeah, but you're only in your early 20s, aren't you? When I moved, yeah. 
I was 21 when I, 21 basically when I started moving to the mainland. Yeah, amazing. You did start your own agency. How difficult was that? And why did you decide to start your own gig? Um, well, I was involved with a, a company that Gadinsky and another gentleman called Michael Browning, who went on to manage ACDC worldwide, they had an agency called Consolidated Rock. And I, I started there as the poster boy and an agent for a few acts. And then uh, I moved to Sydney in 71. I opened up an office up there for them. And then Consolidated Rock went out of business and I started my own agency in Sydney with Roger Davies, who later went on to manage Olivia Newton-John and Tina Turner and now manages Pink. Wow. So why did you decide to go into your own business? Was that the way things were done? You all were kind of individual sole operators? Uh, When I went into my own business, yes. You know, in the early days of rock and roll, there was no blueprint for what you do. Yeah. There is today. And so we used to do everything. We'd be roadies, we'd book the gigs, we'd be the roadie, we'd set the gear up, we'd, you know, collect the money, keep everybody together. And so you, you'd promote it yourself, you'd do all the marketing, you'd go out at night and put posters up in the streets. You'd basically do everything yourself. Yeah, just extraordinary. Now, if I've got this right, you're by the mid-70s, you'd really decided to go for it in the music industry. You did work for Paul Dainty Corporation for a while as a freelance tour director. What exactly did that entail in those days? Well, that entailed basically booking the itinerary, setting up the gigs, being on top of the production people, building stages and everything. I was very lucky with Dainty. I got to learn a hell of a lot. And in the mid-70s, we toured acts like ABBA and David Bowie and Linda Ronstadt. It was quite an amazing time. Oh, and Status Quo, Fleetwood Mac, Leo Sayer. I mean, Paul Dainty was a very good operator from that time. What did you really learn from either him or that corporation that you took with you in your later business? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things I learned was, you know, you always treated the acts the right way. You never shortchanged them. You never lied to them. You did everything they wanted. And uh, most importantly, you stayed out of the way. You were always there in the background if you were needed or there was a problem. And, you know, setting up relationships with acts uh, that last for a long, long time. Yeah. So did you know back then, though, did you have any inkling in your own mind that these relationships would last, that you would be still touring many of these people 30, maybe even 40 years later? Um, Well, yes and no. I mean, it was all still a growth industry. We were still learning the business. Who was to know that You know, Elton John, who I met in 1972, that I'd be doing his last tour of Australia in uh, in 2019-20. That's a relationship, and and I'd like to talk about that in a little while. But what did you learn about the business side of it then? You you mentioned about certainly not shortchanging the acts, looking after them, being honest and open with them. Well, you you got to learn about everything. You had to learn about ticketing. You had to learn about basically all the facets of the business. You know, back then, the health and safety and all that wasn't as uh, documented and as strict as it is today. But 
one thing that I learned very, very early that the most important part of the events was looking after the public and the fans. And right. you know, I've always had a great relationship with the fans. I mean, one of the greatest moments I get is standing on the side of the stage watching someone like Robbie Williams have 40,000 people in the palm of his hand and watching the enjoyment and everything that the fans get out of it and, you know, escaping from life for an hour and a half. Yeah, so can I suggest that you never took the fans who were essentially your customers. You you never took them for granted. Like any company, you've got to look after your customers. That's exactly right. And that's what we do. And, you know, I get a great kick out of walking through an airport and somebody walking up to me and telling me that such and such an act that they saw two years ago was still the greatest moment of their life and thanking me for what I do for Australian music and everything. I, I get a lot out of that. The one thing that, you know, I've always believed and always stood by is that the act and the fans are the most important things and the money, if everything works, the money comes and the money should never, ever be the driving factor behind anything. Obviously, you're not going to do a tour that you know is going to lose money no, no matter what you do, but... Basically, it was always about the event and the tour. Yeah. Back in this time, still in the late 70s, you started Michael Chug Management and you started looking after kind of top Australian acts, Marsha Hines, the church, Kevin Borich, a certain generation will certainly remember all these people, Jimmy and the boys, Richard Clapton, Stevie Wright. So how did that change being a management company? What was the difference between, you know, doing that and being a tour promoter? Well, the difference is that you're managing an act and, you know, in those days the the big motivation was to try and break Australian music worldwide. You know, I'm based in London with different acts. Richard Clapton and Kevin Boric and I moved to America for 76, 77 for nearly a year and I'd come back and, I'd do tours with Paul Dainty, David Bowie, and I'd go back to America, cashed up, and we'd keep trying to break down the walls in America. Fantastic. So you have always been a huge supporter and promoter of Australian talent. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big part of my life. And right now, it's the only thing that's really keeping us all sane because, you know, the, the world of music has changed so much and whilst people come out and say there's no money in streaming and all that, there's a lot of money available in a lot of different income streams today and we're doing very well with our Australian roster of artists. Yeah. Now, you and Michael Godinski first got together, as I understand, to start the Frontier Touring Company. We got back together in an agency called Premier Artists in the mid-70s. Yeah. I had been in England in the 78, 79, and I came back. What was happening in England was that the Sex Pistols had happened and there was a whole wave of, well, new yeah. wave of acts called like Elvis Costello, the police, yeah. the Squeeze, the Clash. And I came back and suggested to Paul that we start touring those acts. He wasn't interested. I was at a premier artist's board meeting, directors meeting in Melbourne one Sunday and Gadinsky had just got back from London and I suggested to him it might be time to start a, our own touring company and uh, he'd come back from England with all the publishing contracts for all the acts I've just mentioned. Well, we decided to start the Frontier Touring Company. How brilliant. 
was the lure, I suppose, that, you know, let's bring this exciting kind of new music, new wave of music, Elvis Costello, Police, The Clash, et cetera, to Australia? Or was the lure making money, having fun? Was it building an empire? Because it certainly would have been seen still as risky. Oh, yeah, it was risky. I mean, the first two tours we did, Squeeze and Police, we were very lucky that Squeeze, who were called UK Squeeze here, it had a big hit. And then the police had Roxanne. We were very lucky with those first two tours. I was still actually working for Dainty at the time. I was the tour director of the second Fleetwood Mac tour. And we were touring them and it was Michael and I were touring the police at the same time. And that was pretty much the end of my relationship with Paul because he couldn't deal with his tour director being a red-hot promoter. So it was about having fun. It was also about wanting to be involved in the new wave and being part of what was going on. I mean, whilst the new wave thing was happening over there, it was also happening here with you know, acts like Paul Kelly and the Dots and, you know, Nick Cave's band and other Melbourne punk bands because Melbourne was the capital of Australian music. It really still is. Was it amicable with Paul Dainty or did it sort of end badly? Oh, he threw a bottle of wine at me in the restaurant in Christchurch, but that was, you know. What? (laughs) That's badly. Hopefully it missed you. Well, yes, it did miss me just um. (laughs) all over the tour account and he wasn't too impressed. But, yeah, look, I wind Paul up today. I tell people that Paul Dainty taught me everything. Yeah, I I actually ran into him at the uh, opening of Hamilton a couple of months ago and we had a very pleasant conversation or two. Oh, that's great. Hmm. Well, you have paid tribute to him already in this interview, so he taught you a lot. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the financial risk and the business risk. Being a tour promoter for these very big international acts that you eventually started through the 1980s. I mean, I think for the 20 years from 1980, you toured the biggest international artists of the time, Madonna, The Police, Frank Sinatra, R.E.M., Liza Minnelli. I mean, it must have been a huge step up for you in a business sense, was it? Yeah, it was. I mean, we were doing very well with premier artists. I was doing very well with my management. Michael was doing, had started Mushroom Records. That was doing very well. It was a big step up. Where it really stepped up was in 1985-86 when we toured Neil Young for the first time he'd ever been here. And also we did Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers together. They were the two really, really big tours. And obviously the police had grown from doing the Capitol Theatre run to playing outdoor stadiums as well. So the mid-80s was an amazing time for us and it then that set up the Madonna Stadium Tour and the Guns N' Roses Outdoor Tour. I mean, we still hold the record for the biggest one-day crowd ever in Sydney was 77,000 at Eastern Creek with Guns N' Roses. That was a huge, huge time. Yeah. So how did you manage funding it and managing the financial risk? Oh, well, we had a very, very good director as a frontier, Philip Jacobson, who'd started off as Daddy Cool's accountant in Hawthorne back in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, really? He was an incredible tour accountant. And, you know, we were making money in our other ventures. So we financed it all ourselves. We've never had investors. Really? So you bootstrapped it all those years, Michael? Yeah, yeah we did. You, you never borrowed from banks or from rich investors? No. Not a penny? Not a penny. 
So can I just ask for those uninitiated, how does the business model work for a touring promoter? Do you pay the big artist and then you take on all the responsibility? The artist doesn't. You take on all the ticket sales. You take on all the financial risk. Yeah, in most deals. I mean, it's changed over the years. When I was with Paul Dainty in the 70s, the act would get a flat fee and the promoter would pay all the international airfares and all that sort of stuff. But today, in a lot of the heavyweight tours, the promoter pays all the on-ground costs, puts up all the money, organises the tour and the acts deliver themselves. They pay their own international fares and freight. And because back in the 70s, the acts didn't get percentages. They were on flat fees. That changed at the beginning of the 80s. So the act would get a guarantee versus a percentage of the profits, which uh, back in those days was probably 80, 20, 75, 25. So sorry, the act would get say twenty or twenty-five percent, or the seventy percent. They'd get the seventy-five or eighty percent of the profits, and we'd get twenty percent. Wow! But no flat fee. They would get flat fees against the percentage. So you might guarantee an act half a million dollars a show versus eighty or ninety. These days, a lot of those big acts get ninety percent of the profit. Michael, if you think back to, say, those those big days of big stadium tours around Australia of the giant kind of international acts, you say you financed it all yourselves. Did you yeah. ever come close to falling over because you might have lost money on one or two of these big tours? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, yes. I mean, you do. You but basically, you know, you tour an act and you lose money on it. You can't really dwell on that. You get on with touring the next act and you manage the best you can. But everybody who's is a promoter has always had moments. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And how do you manage those moments of, oh, my God, are we going to fall over? Are we going to have to close our doors? How are we going to pay the bills? You think about all that when at the time, I mean, we were all very lucky that we had great relationships with all the contractors and equipment providers and all those people and everybody would stick together. It's very much an industry that, you know, looks after itself. I mean, we never really went bankrupt, but at times you'd have problems paying accounts and everybody would hang in with you. Yeah, right. You'd trade your way out of it. So did you lose money on many of the big tours? No, not a lot. I've had a few moments. People say to me sometimes, oh, I like that Simon and Garfunkel shirt you're wearing. I say, yeah, it only cost me 700 grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In that period of the 80s and, and the 90s, now I want a little bit of goss, if you can, which star or act? tour was perhaps the most difficult to make work, to make money on? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, there are a few tours. Sometimes you can lose more money on a small act than you can on a big act. So, yeah. you know, there are a lot of different times where you might tour a mid-level act and lose money, but you'd make money on the bigger act. You know, it got very professional Moving into the 80s and into the 90s, it got very professional and the acts got more professional. And as we got from the 80s to 90s, you know, the partying and all the drug stuff and all that sort of started to disappear. Really? Yeah. Acts like Bon Jovi would turn up with trainers and fitness people. and Drinking water and tea. Yeah, all that. 
Really? Yeah. You can hear the disbelief in my voice. Oh, yeah. No, look, it's a biz- it became very much a business. And, you know, as people got older and, I mean, look, when we first started in this business back in the 60s and early 70s, you know, thinking you'd live to 30 was a big thing. Wow. There was a lot of partying went on, a lot of, you know, you'd be driving up and down the East Coast with your bands, you know, overnight, play a show in Sydney on a Friday and play Melbourne on the Saturday. Mm. And back in those days, travelling up and down the Hume Highway in the late 60s, early 70s was a bit of a death wish. So, But we didn't think about that. It was all about the show must go on. So as as time progressed and the business got more professional, um, everybody got more professional. Yeah, right. Can you remember, is there one standout of either a star or an act who you actually had to pay the most to as their fee or, or the amount of money they walked away with from their trip to Australia? Oh, no, there's, I mean... I mean, not Frank Sinatra or... Well, yeah, Frank Sinatra made a lot of money. I mean, that was a very successful tour. Um, you know, it was, we were quite proud to be part of that. I mean, he did well. I mean, Madonna made incredible money. and Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when you play three or four Sydney cricket grounds and two or three MCGs, you're not, the money's quite large. So yeah. Billy Joel was hugely successful, still is a very successful act. I mean, he's just played 100 Madison Square Gardens in a row over the last five or six years. So the margins are very small, so you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, right. So in this time when you're still with this big, you know, the 80s and 90s, you and Michael Kodinsky, you were working together in a business sense right through this time. Just roughly what was the division of labour? I mean, did you do certain things and he did others and you complemented each other? I mean, you must have worked very successfully with each other through that period. Michael was the face of Frontier and had all the relationships pretty much with all the artists internationally. I would put the tours together in Australia on the road. Yeah. And that's basically, and Philip Jacobson would keep all the money and everything together, and that's basically how it was split up. In the late 90s, Michael got a bit disinterested and was more occupied with this, the Mushroom Records thing, and I started to do more and more travelling and more and more liaising with a lot of the acts. But basically it ran because he was he did all that, I had the relationships with the big managers, and I put it all together on the road. Yeah. So in the year 2000, I think it was, you departed Frontier Touring and started up Michael Chug Entertainment. Why did that happen? Did you actually have a falling out with Gadinsky? No, I had a falling out. I didn't like uh, what was going on with one of our other directors and his attitude to artists and what he was doing. I was also a bit sick and tired of doing all the work at that stage because I was basically touring the world, talking to all the artists and then putting it all together on the road. I was also very interested in the internet and what was to come. I thought that was going to be a huge part of it and nobody else was really interested in that. So given all that, I just laid down an ultimatum to Michael and nothing happened about our gangster director and a few other things, which I don't want to get into deeply. I wanted to get into the internet. I wanted to keep touring young artists. I remember having a huge fight with Philip Jacobson because I toured a young English band in the pubs and lost about $40,000. And he didn't want to keep touring young unknown acts. And that unknown act was Radiohead. 
Oh, really? Now one of the biggest acts in the world. So mm. given all that, I just, and I had people like the late Billy Thorpe in my ear saying, why are you doing all the work? You should be doing this for yourself, da-da-da. So in the end, I started my own company. Yeah, so again, going out on your own was another huge leap of faith, I would put to you. I mean, was it a big risk, do you reckon? Yeah, it was a huge risk and, you know, it was pretty hairy there for a while. It was pretty hairy. I mean, the two of the first tours I did were the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Santana, who at the time were the hottest bands in the world, and I lost money on both those artists. Oh. It was a big risk, and then basically uh, a relationship I had with an English agent in the late 90s, we'd bought out a frontier, we'd done a band called Blur. Well, the agent turned out to be the agent for Robbie Williams, and I brought Robbie Williams to Australia. We broke Robbie in Australia, and he's now one of the biggest acts that's ever been here and still is. Uh, his last tour here in 2018 was amazing. But back in the early 2000s, you know, we did four Sydney cricket grounds and mm. a couple of Marvel stadiums, as it's called today in Melbourne. I mean, it was a mon- monstrous, monstrous artist, and that got me back on track. Yeah, so you made money with Robbie Williams. Yeah, and he's been hugely successful for me over the years. And at the same time, in the early 2000s, a friend who I'd met when he was a tour accountant for ZZ Top back in the 80s, he started managing a country act in Nashville called the Dixie Chicks. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, I still have a relationship with them today. I did their last tour here back in 219, which was hugely yep. successful. And they'll come back when it all opens up again, as will Robbie. Oh, brilliant. I mean, you did Bob Dylan, you did Chris Isaacs, again Elton John, when you went out on your own in the 2000s. I mean, you really had kind of a stellar company after taking this big risk. Yeah, yeah, I did. And I was lucky that, you know, the first couple of years, Michael wasn't really still not back into it properly and of course he got back into it so over the years we uh had a lot of battles but at the same time we always respected each other's artists we remained pretty good friends this is gadinsky yeah so yeah. Frank became a big force again in the 2000s so at one stage there we were probably two of the biggest indie promoters in the world and when it all gets back to back we still will be that so Extraordinary success, really. I mean, can I just step back a bit? I mean, where do you think this risk-taking streak, this entrepreneurialism comes from in you? Was your family in business? No, my father was a fireman. It just came out of being, look, I was quite an intelligent and accomplished pupil, but in my teens I lost interest in school. Basically everything I've done learned through experience of being mm. in the industry. If I had any regrets, I probably should have gone to university and done economics and it probably would have saved me a lot of heartache in the early days. <laughs> but, but, you know, I've got good people around me now and uh, have had, you know, all the time and you have to listen to people. You know, I've always been a great believer in letting the right people do the right jobs and I think it's yeah. one of the reasons that I'm successful and still very much in business. I've always had great relationships with people. A lot of people can't believe that I'll walk into an outdoor venue and I'll talk to the local security guy and the groundsman and I treat everybody equally and I think that's been a big part of my success. 
Yeah, but I mean, you must have been, as well as obviously being really good with relationships with the artists, even with the security guards in the grounds, as you're talking about with other managers and people like that to get these artists, you must have been pretty good at the finance side of it, Michael. Oh, yeah, I've always had good people around me. One thing you do have to realise is what your weaknesses are and dealing with tax departments and all that sort of stuff has never Mm. been... You know, I have people who do that. I have a my accountant who I see as my business manager. She's been with me since the mid-90s. Oh, really? Yeah. So you have the right people in the right place. When you do these tours, can you just paint us a little bit of a picture of how you actually mount these big tours, say for the Robbie Williams and Red Hot Chili Peppers or Dixie Chicks? I mean, how many staff do you have to have then and, and would you have to gear up and bring in employees just for the length of the tour? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I have a, a staff of probably a dozen people who work full time and then you bring in tour managers, you bring in uh, – production managers, you have local reps in each city that work on the ground to get them, keep the marketing going. You might bring in extra publicists. We bring in a lot of extra people and obviously, you know, you employ sound and lighting companies. If you're playing stadiums, you're building stages. I mean, there's a lot of people involved and, you know, you do bring them in. You start off, you get a call from an agent and says so-and-so wants to tour in November 2019. So you start looking for availability. So you have somebody in the office who brings all the venues, gets all the availabilities, you put together an itinerary, then you budget it up to see what you can offer the act. You make the, the act the offer. It goes back and forward. You have production people talking to the act's production people so you can work out the costs accurately and what it's going to all involve, mm-hmm. whether you can do overnighters or whether you need two days between shows, all that sort of stuff. Then the act gets confirmed and then you work out when you're going to announce the tour. You've already worked out what your ticket prices are going to be. You work out when you're going to announce the tour. You work out what media you're going to get involved. Will it be a Triple J Presents or will it be a Triple M Presents? And will you do a, you know, how much can you get your television marketing for and which TV? Should you make your own TV specials? All that sort of stuff. And then you announce the tour. You know, these days you have pre-sales, you have VIP, ticketing. So you put all that into a calendar and basically then you announce it and you go and sell up. It's a lot of work. Yeah, a huge amount of work. So it's very sort of seasonal, I guess I could call it like that, or a lot of contractors and subcontractors. Now, I believe you have Elton John, among others, on speed dial on your phone. I wouldn't go that far. But... <laughs> well, what's your relationship with him like? I mean, would you describe it as more than just promoter and artist? Oh, we're friends. Certainly when we're on the road, we have a lot of time together and we chat and all that. But you know, one of the one of the things that has always worked well for me is stay out of the way and don't be a pain in the ass. And uh, <laughs> that's how I treat those people. So if Elton wants to have a, an hour rave with me, someone will come and say Elton wants to see you in the inner sanctum and away we go. Yeah. You know, you know, same with Bob Dylan. Some tours we will talk all the time. Other tours will say hello at the beginning of the tour and goodbye at the end. Fantastic. But they're probably all your children, so it's very hard if I asked you, do you have a couple of favourites? Because they might be all listening. 
Oh, no, I, look, people ask me who, who my favourites are, and, I mean, it's a list. It's very hard for me to say one act. I mean, I think Robbie Williams is one of the greatest entertainers in the world. I also, you know, Elton John, I mean, if his age to be doing three-hour concerts the way he does them and, and Billy Joel, I mean, I had a great time late in 2019 at Madison Square Garden when I was talking to I went to see Billy and hung out with him and, you know, there's a lot of acts that I regard as good friends. Dixie yeah. Chick and the Dixie Chicks changed management a couple of years ago and which consequently meant they changed all the, every promoter in the world they were working with, they stopped working with except me. They stayed Australia, New Zealand, they stayed with me. So, Well, that's a great testament to you. And, of course, you know, they changed their name and they went through an enormous, an enormous backlash over, uh, you know, certain political comments. So I was at Madison Square Garden when all that with them when all that stuff was going on, and I'd flown over because we were about to announce the tour, and we were going on sale the same day they were playing Madison Square Garden. So I felt it would be good to be there with them, and if the tour was a disaster going on sale, I was there with them. But it actually didn't affect Australia at all. And the amazing thing about Madison Square Garden was all that shit they were going through and copping. 70% of the audience were American soldiers and airmen and sailors in their uniforms loving every minute of it. Yeah. It was a very funny night, actually. We were all backstage and it was a great show. And uh, I was doing a... uh, radio interview with a Brisbane radio station and one of the Dixie Chicks friends was in the in the room with us in the dressing room while I was doing the interview and I ended up putting her on the phone with the radio guy who couldn't believe it. It was Rosie O'Donnell. Oh. Very, she was so funny. Oh, fabulous, yeah. You know, to be there with them and watch what they were going through then was just incredible. But, yeah, they have changed their name back to just the Chicks. The Chicks, yeah. So, Michael, do you feel you were able to offer great support when they needed it? Yeah, and, you know, it meant a lot to them to be there and it was great to be able to sit there with them and so oh, we just sold 8,000 tickets in 25 minutes and things like that. It means a lot when, and Michael Gadinsky, God bless him, was the same. When the relationships with the acts and, you know, the pleasure they get out of seeing you, you know. When I went to see Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden in 2019, it wasn't for me to get the tour. It was to make sure he honoured his deal with Michael and came out. But obviously COVID smashed all that. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you really must have a whole bookload, and I know you've written your book, but of extraordinary stories about not only having great fun and some wonderful times with these artists, but also, I guess, about averting disasters on tours or dealing with all sorts of unforeseen problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had a few moments catching small one propeller planes from Perth to Adelaide because of airstrikes and driving um, in normal tour coaches overnight from Melbourne to Adelaide because there were no flights, all that sort of stuff. Extraordinary. Michael, if you don't mind, we're going to take a break. And we're going to return with Michael Chug in part two next week. We're going to talk about him diversifying, about COVID and the future of music. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. B 
Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.